So I realized I had to let go of everything that I felt comfortable with and just focus on every single thing that was uncomfortable. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living Podcast, and I am Yvonne Marchese, your host. Oh, and do I have a story for you this week. I'm talking to Anthony Reed. At the age of 50, he co-founded the National Black Marathoners Association with his friend Charlotte Simmons. 15 years later, they have grown from two people to about 16,000 members. He is also one of about 60 people in the world who completed the marathon hat trick, having finished over 100 marathons, uh, completing a marathon on all seven continents, including Antarctica. Um, By the way, fewer than 225 people in the world have done that, the running of seven continents, and he's the first black person in the world to accomplish that feat. And the last part of that hat trick includes finishing marathons in all 50 states. His running clothes and other artifacts are with the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, and a three-hour video recording of his life story is in a special collection of black history makers in the U.S. Library of Congress. He is now 65 years old and still running. He he logs about three, three miles a day, and no big deal. He has published five books, and his sixth and latest book is titled From the Road Race to the Rat Race, Essays from a Black Executive Marathoner. Oh, did I forget to mention he holds two graduate degrees, management and accounting, and two undergraduate degrees, management and mathematics. He's led multi-million dollar international projects for some of the largest Fortune 500 companies in the Dallas area and worked for a big four CPA firm in their management advisory division. Oh my gosh, I'm exhausted just talking about it and he's the one who lived it. You know, you know, the thing is, it's easy to look at someone with all these accomplishments and think, well, that's all well and good for them. They must be special, you know, a unicorn or a superhero or something, super superhuman, which is what I've told Tony. Um, but the thing is, is I really can't wait for you to hear about his mindset and his work ethic and what drives him to excel. Let's go. Hey, Tony. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for doing this today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Oh my gosh. Guys, uh, I'm not going to do much of an intro with Tony, but I mean, I, the reason I found you, let's just say this, I, I, I was completely uh, taken with who you are immediately. Um, I was reading AARP and they had, I, I was, I was reading about, they, they have this series called age disruptors. And I think you had self submitted a comment about having started the national black marathoners association at the age of 60. Is that right? Uh, yes. I was at the age of 50 at the time that I started it. Oh, you were 50. Okay. So I was mishearing the 5-0 and the 6-0. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So you started that. It was you and one other person, right? Yes, it was uh, Charlotte Simmons. Uh, we had met about four years earlier at a conference in Chicago. 
Uh, I was a speaker at the National Bike Data Processing Association conference, and I happened to have made a comment that I had a goal of running 50 marathons before I turned 50 years old. And at that time, I had run, I believe, about 46 marathons. Uh, but I was just kind of running them, and I really wasn't thinking anything about the fact that, you know, 46 or 47 marathons was a lot. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, Charlotte and some other runners that were there approached me afterwards, and they said, we've never, ever met another Black who's run that many marathons. And I just didn't think anything of it. Uh, I guess because I was just doing them one at a time, and in a lot of the marathons, I was, you know, the only black or there may have only been five or six blacks in a race. Yeah. Uh, but I just never really thought it was a lot, you know, so I, and I've been That's, running marathons. I'm going to tell you one marathon to me is a lot. So I am just blown away by that number. And that's, well, I, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg for you, really, right? Yes. Well, I, I had set a lifetime goal of averaging, of really trying to complete two marathons a year. And so, um, and that's because uh, when I was eight, I was diagnosed with a pre-diabetic condition and the doctor said I would go on insulin by the time I was a teenager. Wow. Uh, I went to a high school where it was mandatory that you participate in sports. And subsequently I ended up losing weight. Um, and I didn't have to go on insulin, but at that time there really wasn't that direct connection between uh, being fit, losing weight, and uh, not having to go on insulin. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I got in college, I read a book where they said diabetics who were dependent on insulin could decrease their insulin intake or go completely off of it if they maintained a fitness program. So uh, beginning in 1976, I set a lifetime goal of averaging about three miles a day of running, walking, or crawling. I've kept a running journal since 1979, and I still keep it up. In fact, just wrote in it today. And uh, I've run over 45,000 miles, averaged wow. exactly three miles a day, and I'm still not on insulin at 65. So um, one of the things that kind of motivated me to maintain that three miles a day average was... Uh, committing to running two marathons a year. So I live here in Dallas, Texas. So I decided that I would run the Dallas Marathon, which is in December every mm -hmm. year. And then I would run the Fort Worth Marathon, the Cowtown Marathon every February. So training for those two marathons kept me fit through the weight gaining holiday seasons of Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas, and New Year's. Uh -huh. <laughs> There's a little tip for everybody. So, <laughs> Just uh, sign up for a marathon. And then <laughs> so literally for wow. 20 plus years, every year I was just running those two marathons. Wow. And now that, that doesn't even get into, I mean, when you and I talked last time, you've done some amazing things. Um, you, so you did complete your 50 before you turned 50, right? First yes. of all, that's one goal you made. Yes. And I have a note here and I'm, I, I'm not sure this is right from our last conversation, but it says you ran 13 marathons in one year, multiple yes. countries. Well, right? yes. And yes. was it, that it, when you were 50? 
or how old were you when you did that? Yes, um, the year that I was 50, I, I had a goal of running a marathon, at least a marathon a month, and each one had to be in a different state or country. Oh my God. So leading up to that, I, I had two goals. One was to run 50 marathons before I turned 50. And the second goal was to run 50 marathons in one state. So uh, I had run 50 marathons in Texas. And I said, you know, it's time for me to kind of get out and explore the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and also when running 50 marathons in Texas, I was a sole support for a family of four. And I just really couldn't justify flying around the country just to run a 26.2 mile race. Uh, but I figured by the time I was 50, my kids would be grown and out the house. And as they say, when your children are young, they want your time and not your money. And when you're older, they want your money and not your time. So uh, therefore, I was basically free to free to travel. So yeah, yeah I set the goal of doing a marathon a month with each one being in a different state or country. Wow. Do your kids run? Uh, no, they don't. They don't. No. Wow. I, it's, I think they just, they, um, how shall I say it? You know, it's one of those things they've, you know, was saw from the time that, time that they were little. So they just really weren't impressed by it. Uh-huh. It, it's just what dad does, but, huh? Right. And I'm the type of person, if I've, you know, if, if you, if we met, I'm not going to kind of beat it into your brains, you know, Hey, you know, you really need to run. Uh, people who know me know that I run and I don't try to encourage them to do it. Uh, but if they decide to do it, they know that I'm a, that I am a certified running coach and I'll be more than, more than happy to help them. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you started that, um, the association with two people. And yes. if, I rem- if I remember right from our last conversation, you now have 16,000? Yes, 16,000 are growing. That is incredible. So what, what was it like starting that association? Like, so, so she came to you and said, hey, you're the only Black runner I've seen doing this, this many and you didn't think it was anything special. Where did that take you as you, as you, uh, as you went down that journey? Well, um, this was in 2001, and this was kind of when the internet was just kind of beginning to, to get started. Mm-hmm. Um, so over three or four years, again, and I kind of started running marathons outside of Texas, uh, the first, the second one I ran was in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. Mm-hmm. So uh, it gave my parents an opportunity to, to come out and watch me run. But much to my surprise, the route that we ran took us past the public housing projects that I used to live in when I was in St. Louis. Wow. And so um, it was the Blue Mire Projects. And as I was running down the street, I remember there were some black kids that were sitting on a curb and they were watching the race and they saw me and they kind of got up and kind of just started running like a couple of blocks with me and we were talking. And it occurred to me that I was basically a role model for those kids. And so it really got me thinking about the impact that distance running has had on my life and the places that it had taken me. 
And um, then when I ran my 50th marathon, Charlotte brought several black runners up from Atlanta because uh, she was a member of a black running club there. Mm-hmm. And so they all joined me here to run the marathon. Uh, it was called the Dallas Trails Marathon. And all of us ended up winning age group or weight division trophies. Wow. So this is a real small marathon. And we got to thinking about how great it would be if a group of black marathoners could congregate somewhere around the country every year just to participate in a race so we can get an opportunity to see each other. Yeah. So with that, when we finally formed the organization, we formed it as a nonprofit organization that would award college scholarships to African-American cross-country and distance runners. And we would also meet once a year at a different marathon somewhere around the country to bring as many black marathoners together as we can to participate in a race. And even though the name of the organization is the National Black Marathoners Association, about 60% of our members have never run a marathon and never planned to. So we have always been open to Mm -hmm. all runners, regardless of their, their skill level, are uh, even where they're from. So we have members not only in the U.S., but also in foreign countries. Wow. And we have and a lot of members in the military also. Yeah. And so you've been providing um, scholarships then. Do you, do you know how many scholarships you've provided? I mean, not to put um, you on the spot, but... That's- we've awarded over $50,000 in scholarships. That's true. Uh, several... In the beginning, we only awarded scholarships for the freshman year. Uh, However, as the organization grew in size, we said that we could commit to awarding scholarships for all four years. Mm -hmm. And uh, this year, in fact, with the pandemic, we realized that our scholarship recipients may not be able to work during the summer to save money for college, and their parents may not be able to work. Uh, So therefore, we reached out to our members and we were able to double the amount of money that we were able to award each scholarship recipient. And uh, there's also a technology divide Uh, between uh, African-Americans and the white community. Mm -hmm. And again, from talking with our college students, they said that they didn't have laptops in order to do the uh, telecommuting. So again, we reached out to our members and one of our members, uh, Roosevelt Roosevelt Giles is the, I believe he's the CEO of Atlanta Life Insurance Company. Uh, They stepped up and they donated MacBooks for our scholarship students. Wow. So it's, it's, it's a game changer. It's great forming an organization where we give back to the community. And I've been the executive director for 15 years and it's been an all volunteer organization. So the money that comes into the organization goes back out to help others. Wow. Congratulations. And, and I'm just uh, completely, I, I, I'm speechless. That's, a, that's an, I, I didn't realize that there was that aspect of the organization that went beyond. I mean, it's, it's amazing enough to, to be creating an awareness and, and encouraging um, the sport and the activity and the health and all that comes with doing that. And then to make, um, I'm verklempt, to make an impact on people like that. That's amazing. 
Yeah, so we like to say we impact the, the youth through our scholarships, and we also impact the older runners uh, by taking away the myth that African-Americans don't do distance running. Mm -hmm. uh, we encourage people to pursue long distance running and walking. And uh, again, we try to get people off of insulin, the high blood pressure medicine, medicine for hypertension, uh, as I like to call them, the diseases of inactivity, which impacts a lot of older African-Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, so we try to provide role models in that area to encourage them to get off the couch and to become active. Tremendous. Wow. And, you know, for you, I mean, I, you've, you've obviously had your life impacted and changed by distance running that goes beyond even your health, um, I would say, and, and into your career, would you say? Has that been an impact on who you've been in your industry and, you know? Yes, there's um, there's a lot of interesting correlations between being a distance runner and being an executive. Uh, in every company that I've worked in since 1976, I was either the first black hired in information technology. Uh, I was um, also either the highest ranking black in information technology, if not in the entire company. And this goes for companies such as uh, Texas Instruments, Frito-Lay, and, and what have you. So I've been a trailblazer in that area, as well as in distance running. Um, in 19, sorry, in 2007, I became the first black in the world to run marathons on all seven continents, including Antarctica. Uh, there is something called the type T personality, uh, which is associated with thrill seeking. And this is something that uh, business executives, entrepreneurs, and endurance athletes all have in common, mm. is that uh, we have the ability to move outside of our comfort zones and uh, to challenge ourselves to do things that other people would just kind of shake their heads and just turn around and walk away from. That's amazing. Uh, Can I ask you a question? Because that, that's just just amazing. Were you always what you would call a type T personality or like you, you mentioned that you were required to do a sport in high school. So before your high school career, would you say that you were a thrill seeker or that you had that same kind of drive? I mean, clearly you have incredible drive was it always there or is it something that developed that you can point to a time that that happened for you? Uh, there were two particular incidents that probably really drove me to being a thrill seeker and someone kind of living outside of the box. Uh, the first incident came when my, um, when my parents drove my brother and I down to uh, a funeral in my mother's hometown. And when we got there, we were there for such a long period of time or something that my mother had to go to the laundromat. So she went to the laundromat and I was about probably seven years old. So we go to the laundromat, she starts putting the clothes in the washer 
And I told her, mom, stop, you're doing it all wrong. You put the, the white clothes on the other side of the laundromat and you put the color clothes on this side of the laundromat. And that day, my mother explained to me that we were in a segregated laundromat. Oh, wow. And they had signs over the doors, one said whites and one said colors. And I thought they were talking about clothes. Oh, my God. Uh, so that day, my mother explained to my brother and I about segregation and discrimination. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but wonder, you know, well, why? You know, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, So that's one thing that kind of drove me to want to live outside of my comfort zone and and explore other areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second turning point came when uh, I was in the seventh or eighth grade, and my mother was working at a high school in St. Louis. She was a principal secretary. This is a Soldan High School. And every year, there was a senior trip that took place around spring break. So... um, and they, the students would go from St. Louis to Washington, D.C., New York City, and eventually kind of make their way back around to St. Louis. So the night before the trip started, we were in a department store in St. Louis. We saw a bunch of people gathering at the place where they were selling televisions. And we walked by, and we just learned Martin Luther King Jr. had just been assassinated. Mm-hmm. And that next day, uh, imagine uh, a black senior class getting on a bus and going to Washington, D.C. when mm. they were having all the rioting and everything mm. was going on. Um, so we made it to Washington, D.C. Uh, a couple of days later, we took our passes to go to tour the Capitol, and the Capitol guards refused to let us in because we were, we were an all-black group. So they told us we had to step aside and literally let white tour groups go by. Mm. Uh, When that happened, we ended up spending a lot of time in the Smithsonian Museums because they would let us in without passes or anything. And uh, I decided that, you know, it would be great to do something famous and to do something good one day that Mm -hmm. would end up in the Smithsonian Museum. So... um, that's something that had always stayed with me. And as being of a, somewhat of a history buff, I was aware of all of the things that African-Americans had done, through, done throughout time. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone from Booker T. Washington to George Washington Carver. Uh, in fact, I have used to compete in um, African-American history contests. Uh, so, uh, you know, I just wanted to do something in which I could make a positive contribution to society. Uh, After uh, I finished running marathons on all seven continents, I believe it was in 2012, uh, I received a letter from uh, the African-American Museum of of History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and they wanted my running clothes that I had worn when I ran the marathon in Africa, which was my seventh continent. Uh, So I ended up sending my clothes to them and it was kind of like completing a circle, so to speak. And then later on, my life story ended up being in a video library that was in the U.S. Library of Congress. So those dreams and things that I had in 1968 ended up becoming true some almost what 40 years later yeah wow what how 
I, I can't even imagine how that must have made you feel to get that phone call. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it was the only thing I can say. It, it was truly mind-blowing. <laughs> um, but, you know, all along, all along the way, I had been excelling not only in sports, but also in business mm -hmm. and being a trailblazer there and opening up the door for other African-Americans, uh, you know, that wanted to get in technology and presenting opportunities for them. How did you get started in IT and technology? What was the, uh, what was your entree or entry into that? It was a very non-traditional path. Uh -huh. uh, when I was in high school, I realized that um, I gravitated more towards math than I did towards English. Uh, because I found English to be very subjective once it came to grading. Uh, yes. uh, whereas mm -hmm. in math, if you showed your work and you got the right answer, they had to give you full credit for it. Mm -hmm. So I gravitated very heavily towards math versus, um, versus uh, English. And uh, I continued that in college. And in fact, uh, I remember when I took the GMAT and GRE for, uh, to get into grad school, uh, I was mistakenly accepted into a PhD program in math instead of the, MB, the MBA program uh, that I had actually applied to. Um, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Did you have a master's at the time? No, I had an undergraduate degree in math, but my score on the uh, GRE was so high, they accepted me into their PhD program. You're kidding me. In math. Wow. Uh, no, but it, it all came back to bite me later on. Uh, speaking of, you know, uh, having to face challenges, uh -huh. uh, as it was moving up the corporate ladder, I realized that in order for me to get ahead, that I had to improve my writing skills. Mm. Uh, so I ended up uh, honing my writing skills to the point that I was getting articles published in magazines such as Computer World and Datamation and was asked to write columns for uh, local newspapers. Uh, so I had to step way outside of my comfort zone. I had to get used to uh, constructive criticism in order to improve my writing skills. So then again, you know, as a result of that, I got promoted into higher level management positions. Uh, then I found myself hitting a glass ceiling mm -hmm. in that uh, people found it very difficult to believe that an African-American uh, was responsible for managing multi-million dollar projects and international staff. Even though I had it on my resume, uh, it was still highly questionable that I had actually achieved uh, those uh, those uh, skill levels. Were, did you did that present itself to you as um, in a very direct way, or in more of a microaggression kind of way? What was how did how did you how did you, what was your experience of that disbelief? Oh, it, Oh, it, it, it was very direct. Uh, wow. It's something that I had um, picked up very early on in my career when um, a group of us would be reviewing resumes and we would be interviewing job applicants. 
And I remember people always making a comment as well, you know, we're looking for someone who has good verbal skills and good writing skills. And we're just not sure about this one applicant. And the applicants that they would always be making those statements about were African American applicants. Mm. Uh, so that kind of let me know that, well, you know, we can have a resume that is perfect, uh, no, no grammar errors, no typographical errors, but there was this perception that we couldn't write and that we couldn't speak. Mm-hmm. So I realized the only way I could take away that perception was by also by having articles published mm-hmm. and by uh, giving speaking engagements at conferences. Mm-hmm. So that kind of snatched away that excuse. Mm-hmm. Then the next excuse again was, we just don't believe that an African-American person could have managed multi-million dollar projects and international project teams. So uh, the only way I could take away the excuse about uh, my ability to manage money was to return back to college in my 30s and 40s, get a master's degree in accounting and pass the CPA exam. So now that took away the excuse about my ability to manage money. Mm -hmm. And again, I was able to move into higher level executive positions. Uh, But getting a master's degree in accounting was by no means easy. I had uh, flunked my accounting classes as an undergraduate student. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, I'm in a position where I'm having to do something that's not normal and that's Mm -hmm. not very comfortable. I remember sitting in um, my first advanced accounting class in grad school, and the professor told us that uh, if you're used to making 90s, forget it. You know, the highest grade you're going to get in this class is going to be a 70, so we have to grade on a curve. And uh, he said because of that also, he'd highly recommend that we get in the study groups. Mm-hmm. So this class met uh, once a week for two and a half to three hours. So we had a break during the class. And he says, you know, you should form a study group. So as soon as he said, you know, okay, we're going to have our break, people immediately formed their study groups. But Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to get in any of the study groups. I was the only black in the class. The class had maybe about 12 students in it. Mm -hmm. So I was faced with um, so a very interesting challenge. I could go to, go to the professor and complain, mm-hmm. and uh, he could, you know, kind of put me in a study group, but then mm-hmm. I would be with a group of individuals who didn't want me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could drop the class. I could um, basically change my major because I was going to be having to deal with that throughout all the advanced accounting classes, mm-hmm. or I could just kind of study hard and just kind of hope to somehow survive. Uh, but I took the other option. I decided I was going to break the curve. And so I studied extremely hard. Uh, He gave the first exam. Then the next week afterwards, he came back and he announced to the class, uh, listen, we're not going to be able to grade on a curve. Uh, Someone scored a 93 or 94. The next highest grade was 72. And uh, in order to pass, you needed a 75. Uh, I was the person who scored the 93. Mm -hmm. Everyone else in the class failed. 
And I continued to do that for the rest of the advanced accounting classes. Wow. Did anybody so, invite you to be in a study group after that? They did, but I kind of explained to them that, um, you know, I'm, I may get in their way. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and <laughs> continue on my own. So there is, uh, what's yes. the saying that uh, you can throw me to the wolves and I'll come back leading a pack? Mm hmm Clearly, clearly, so, wow, uh, oh my gosh. Oh, why are we all like this? Um, so crazy, it's so crazy. But you know, it's, to me, it's being able to kind of step back and look at the big picture and yeah. borrow from multiple areas. Uh, so in order to pass, to pass the accounting, I borrowed, some of the things that I had to learn from endurance sports. Uh, when in running, you kind of do what they call when, when you hit the wall, which is when your body runs out of glycogen. And this usually happens between 18 and 20 miles. Mm -hmm. And that's when people start to shake and get the weird, the we all the yes. weird reactions, right? Yes. Yes. And it's like you, your body wants to quit and your mind is yelling and screaming at your body just to keep moving, just to take one step at a time. And that's when you get into that very uncomfortable zone. And the same thing happens on a mental level. Um, when I was studying for the CPA exam, I studied really hard, took a practice exam, and I only scored 20%. Uh, went back, studied even harder, took another practice exam, and again, I only scored about 20%. And I realized every time I went back to study, I only studied the material that I already knew, which is the material that I felt comfortable with. Mm -hmm. uh, anytime I tried mm -hmm. to study the things that I didn't know, I felt stupid. I felt like an idiot. And I said, I don't like this. And I kept studying the same thing that I already knew. Sure. So I realized I had to let go of everything that I felt comfortable with and just focus on every single thing that was uncomfortable. And uh, I was able to pass a CPA exam. And surprisingly, when I went back and was teaching college classes in accounting, I found myself having to teach every single thing I didn't like and everything that I felt uncomfortable with. <laughs> of course, right? Oh, my yes. goodness. What, so so okay uh, first of all I have, I have a couple of questions you're you have a natural talent it sounds like for math and and that that is that's something that that comes more naturally to you from the beginning no no, it no. Doesn't. It doesn't. oh interesting so you just preferred math because it was cut and dried with the answers but not because it came easily to you correct very interesting. Okay, that was one little question I had because then I was like, so what was it? I, I was trying to think to myself, if, if you went along the IT and all the math that you'd done, how did it not transfer into the CPA work? But it was just, it's just that you, you made it work. Yes. Yes. Got it. None so, of it came easy. Right. And, and what I was watching, um, the oh gosh what's the name of it it was the uh the 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 world's toughest race 
Did you watch this show? It's an endurance race. Yes, I, I've seen commercials for it. Oh yes. my goodness! And I, and and it gets to the point in this in this crazy race that these people are in that these top level athletes, these people who who do what you do that 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 are able to push through the toughest of situations at certain points a good many of them hit their wall um some of them weren't able to get past it maybe because of a physical injury but many of them hit the wall and were able to push through and that was the part of it that was so fascinating to me what is it that you do when you hit that wall what do, what do you how do you how do you keep yourself moving through that 18th 20th mile uh, i i use m&ms and uh <laughs> m&ms okay <laughs> It is, uh, it, it, it stands for two things for me. So one M So not literally for, M&Ms? I was, well, I was imagining you popping a couple of M&Ms at that point. Is that? Those, those well, yes, those, those do help. I'll let you go but, on. <laughs> but uh, the one M stands for uh, mantra. Mm. So mm. I, I always have a mantra. My, my mantra is hills build character. So I look at every challenge as a character builder. Uh, the other M stands for music. So uh, when I run, I don't listen to music or anything like that because I'm also kind of getting tuned into the environment. I'm looking out for cars and listening for dogs and things. Uh, but I always have a song in my heart. And when I run marathons or when I'm, you know, hitting the wall, songs will pop into my head. Um, my favorite artist is George Clinton from Parliament Funkadelic. Nice. Uh, so one year I was running a Hartford marathon and we had, there was four and a half inches of rain during the race. Wow. And so I found myself singing uh, a song called Cycle Alpha Disco Beta Bio Aqua Loop by Parliament Funkadelic. The short version, <laughs> short name is called Aqua Boogie. And he talks about dancing underwater without getting wet. I envision ah. myself running through this three and a half inches of rain. The rain is parting and I'm perfectly dry during the race. Wow. Um, so I, I always have a song associated with, um, with all the different races that I've run and even during my training runs. So that is, you know, one of the things that helps me kind of break through the wall. Uh, I also feel like I stand on the shoulder, so to speak, of, uh, of my relatives. I happen to be my family's genealogist. Mm -hmm. And I look at, I can look at my older brother, Curtis. He's a year older than I am. And in 1976, he rode his bicycle 7,200 miles from St. Louis going up to Vancouver, Canada by himself. Wow. So, you know, I could kind of look to him and go, well, you know, if he can do that, wow. I can certainly, you know, run this marathon. Uh, I have my uncle Prince, who was uh, one of the first uh, black professional motorcycle racers in the Ohio Valley region. Uh -huh. uh, so when I look at thrill seekers, you know, I can also look at my uncle Prince. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have, um, um, what are they called, uh, role models that I look at. Uh, so my long-distance role model 
for a long time was Dick Gregory from St. Louis, Missouri. A lot of people didn't realize that Dick Gregory was an all-American collegian in cross-country and track. And in 1976, he ran from L.A. to New York City and averaged 41 miles a day. So I could look at it and say, if Dick Gregory can run 41 miles in a day, I can certainly run 26.2 miles in a day. Yeah. So for me, it's all about, you know, putting things in perspective Mm-hmm. and uh, looking at the things that other people have done that I've, that I've met and interviewed. Yeah. Wow. M&Ms. There yes. we go. I'm going to hold on to that. That is fantastic. Wow. You know, and I love that you're thinking about your ancestors. I, as, as we were going into the COVID shutdown, I forget what I was listening to, but they were talking about how really, you know, our ancestors were, were badasses. You go back, if you're here, you're descended from badasses somewhere down the line, excuse my language, but you know, the people before us had to go through some things and we can do this, right? Yes. Yes. I have a database of 1,200 family members going all the way back to 1826. And the challenge for uh, African-Americans is when you get to anything before 1865, you're looking at periods of slavery. Mm-hmm. And so the biggest challenge is finding anything before 1865. How do you even find the information, right? Yes. That's the biggest challenge for us. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, yes. So, um, for me, the only way I've been able to track anything beyond that is looking at the 1870 census records. And every now and then, I will be able to find where someone's grandparents happen to have been living with someone. And um, Mm -hmm. so, yeah, the 1870 census, every adult who was in there were, usually were slaves, had been slaves before 1865. Wow. And you just take, you're like superhuman, Tony it seems like you take these challenges and everything that's come that you've come up against in life and you just go, no, I'm moving through this. Yes. And um, I I also look at it from the standpoint of people want to try to put me in a box. Mm -hmm. And it's just a question of whether or not I decide to live in the box that they put me in. Mm hmm. So uh, when I was studying uh, for the CPA exam, for example, I already knew there were about 2,500 African-American CPAs in the country out of about 450,000 CPAs. So Blacks represented a little over half of 1% of the CPAs in the country, even though we represented about 17% of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I was going to be going up against the odds. Uh, when I ran my first marathon, I also realized right off the bat that, again, I was going up against the odds. Uh, the odds of finding an African-American marathon finisher 
is uh, well below 1%. And uh, with the National Black Marathoners Association, we've been able to pull all of those um, individuals together. Mm-hmm. So, like and I said, that's more to- a function probably of, of the lack of participation, correct? And, and because I can't imagine what it takes time-wise to train for a marathon. And I imagine that, you know, there's, you have to have a certain level of uh, financial comfort probably to, to be able to step into that kind of a training schedule. And would you, do you think that that plays into the lack of participation? I think the lack of participation is more associated with uh, the lack of role models. Okay. Um, I guess I'm thinking more historically and not more recently, but. um... Well, even from a historical perspective, uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've kind of looked at and for decades, I would always hear people say, uh, African-Americans don't run distances, we run sprints. Okay. So going back to the days of slavery, again, prior to 1865, uh, Blacks were told not to run far. Because mm-hmm. if you got it into your mind that you can run a long distance, then you would run off the plantation. Oh, yeah. So you have a lot of us, basically, it's being drilled into our heads. We're incapable of running long distances. Hmm. And so, again, it's about stepping outside of that box. It's not letting yourself be put in that box, right? And just the box is there. Other people are going to try to put you there. And you've just got to say no. Right. And we even put ourselves in that box. Yeah, we all do. We all do, right? Um, Yeah. Wow. So it's about, uh, again, stepping outside that box. Yeah. And that's when life truly begins. Here, here. How old were your kids when you went back and got your, uh, your MBA or, you know, your accounting, your CPA? Okay. So let's see. I got my, I have two, I have two masters. Uh, I have a, MBA, which I got in 1982, so I was 27, and I received my MS in accounting in 92, so I was 37. And 27, if I remember right, that's about, is that when you ran your first marathon? Yes, it is. Wow. So you got your MBA and you ran your first marathon. That was a banner year. (laughs) Yes, it was. Yeah. And how old were your kids at this point? Uh, when I ran my first marathon, um, they were, well, my oldest had, was just born. So he was a year old. Okay. Wow. And I like to say each child cost me 400 miles a year in running <laughs> by the time they each turned three. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's so, tough, uh, tough to make the time for training. When you, uh, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But um, I remember when I was running once, I ran into a, 
an older gentleman and I was much younger and we were running and he mentioned he was from St. Louis. I said, oh, that's my hometown. I said, what do you think about the uh, baseball Cardinals? And he said that he had had a triple bypass heart surgery and uh, the doctors told him, uh, and he said prior to getting the surgery, he used to spend all of his time watching sports on television. After his surgery, he decided to take the time he would spend watching athletes and take that time to become an athlete. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, he stopped watching football and baseball and started spending that time to go running. And so that's one of the things that I like to tell people is that they have the time to run. It's just a question of whether or not they want to make the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's all about how we choose to spend our time. Exactly. Exactly. That goes for anything, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I mean, I'm looking at notes. Six books published now? Yes. Um, in fact, I have a book that is scheduled to be uh, available next month. That is so exciting. So what's the title of that book? It is From the Road Race to the Rat Race, Essays from a Black Executive Marathoner. So it is an autobiography. Wow. So some of what we talked about today, I'm going to guess is going to be in that book and I'm guessing more. Yes. Yes. It's, it, it was a lot of fun writing it. As, uh, as I said, you know, I had time during the pandemic. Uh-huh. Uh, it's something that people had talked to me about, you know, writing for, for years. And I just really wasn't quite able to fit it in, so to speak, with everything else going on. Right. So as soon as the pandemic hit, I gave myself a deadline and said I wanted to have the book completely written uh, by my birthday, which was in July. And by the way, that's also one of the keys to me to achieving goals and taking things off of your bucket list is you have to give yourself a deadline. And until you give yourself a deadline, you will never, ever get it done. And giving yourself a deadline puts pressure on you uh, to get off the couch and pursue that particular goal. Right on. So I right uh, gave myself that deadline and was able to get the book written. And like I said, it will be available next month. That is so exciting. And, and you, you literally just answered my, w- one of my next questions, which was what advice would you have for somebody who wants to uh, step into doing something new and give yourself yes. a deadline? I like to say someday is not a day of the week. Oh. People will say, I'll get to it someday. So, mm-hmm. um, so, yes. Yeah, so one of the things, like I said, I am a certified distance running coach. Uh, I also am a life coach. So I take, again, the skills and things learned from running long distances, as well as being an executive and use that to help people to reach their own life goals. Wow. You're superhuman. <laughs> I mean, I just like listen to everything you've done and I've got 50 articles, right? Somewhere yeah, in so over 50 articles and, just, and I'm one of uh, 50 people in the world to have completed the marathon hat trick, which consists of running at least 100 marathons, uh, one marathon in every state and one marathon on all seven continents. 
That's crazy. And I think you told me some, how that compares to the number of people who have summited Mount Everest. Right. There are the year that I ran marathon, the year that I finished running marathons on all seven continents, there were only about 250 people in the world that had completed that, that goal. But at the same year, there were over 500 people who reached the summit of Mount Everest. So, um, That'll Doing the seven continents, yes, wow. is extremely rare. And the other thing I tell people is once you start taking things off of your bucket list and you start pursuing them, you will meet amazing people along the way. Uh, I was at a banquet in Buenos Aires and uh, ran into a lady. Her first name is Jenny. And so we start talking at this banquet and she said her goal was to run a marathon on all seven continents and climb the highest peak on all seven continents. And the only, con the only peak she had not been able to summit was Mount Everest after two prior attempts. So Jenny and I spent the rest of that evening talking about running marathons all around the world and climbing uh, her challenges on climbing Mount Everest. Uh, the next year, we were both featured in Runner's World. She became the first woman in the world to do marathons on all seven continents and climb the highest mountain on all seven continents. And she's from Seattle. And I was featured in Runner's World for being the first black in the world to run marathons on all seven continents. Wow. So now, that's amazing. So she, so she was credited with being the first woman to do that, but were there, are there other people who have done that same feat that, that were men that have run all the continents and done the, the peaks? You know, I don't know. I wonder if she, I mean, because that's extraordinary. Like, yes, I, I can put you in contact with Jenny. That is amazing. That I would love that. Yes. <laughs> I would love that. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, Tony, so, I am so grateful to you for taking a little time out of what I'm sure is a very busy schedule to come and, and spend time with me. Well, thank you for having me. This, this has been a lot of fun. And it, one of the things I, I always tell people is uh, I didn't do all this in one year. You know, we're looking at 40 to 50 years. Right. And um, still looking at doing more over the next 40 to 50 years. Yeah, all right. I would give you a high five through the screen if I could. I am with you on that for sure. I, one of my favorite... Um, one of my favorite sayings is, is uh, that kind of keeps me going is that you, you underestimate what you can do or you overestimate what you can do in a year and underestimate what you can do in 10. Yes. And, uh, that's what keeps me going on the days when I'm, I'm plugging away and it thinks, seems like I'm just dog paddling, you know, but uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, I will put for anybody who wants to check out Tony's book. Um, it's Anthony Reed is what you go by and that's how people can find you. And um, yes. I'll put links in the show notes for people if they want to go check that out. It should time out really well. I mean, I'm talking to you here, Tony, on uh, October 13th, but the book will be out close to the time this podcast comes to, to everybody's ears. And uh, so go check out his book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know I will. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. Again. Thank you. I've enjoyed being on the program. 
Well, there you have it. If you want to know more about Tony or read his book, I'll have that information for you in the show notes. You can just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 22. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, if you got something out of this today and it makes you think of someone you know who might need an inspiring story, can you take a minute to share this with them? You can really help spread the word about this podcast and spread some information around to your friends by sharing it on Facebook, email, or Instagram. And I'd really appreciate your help. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.